0: Why didn't that bit grow?
1: Because you didn't turn the fan on to let the seed come through to put it in the ground. How did the fan know to
0: come on there and the other end, then?
1: I'm surprised, to be honest, you got that far, because it had been beeping at you.
0: Oh, it did beep. Oh, is that where it was beeping?
2: Yes. That's the voice of Caleb Cooper, a 24 year old farmer who's the unexpected star of Jeremy Clarkson's new show, Clarkson's Farm. Caleb went into farming straight from school, but in the industry, people like him are in the minority. It's estimated that the average age of the farming industry is 59, raising questions around the future of British farming. Are young people just not interested? On this episode, we'll be taking a look at the next few decades for British farming. Young farmers are part of the picture, but we'll also be discussing the role played by immigration, especially post-Brexit, the agricultural pressures and questions around self-sufficiency given the war in Ukraine, and how to balance all of this with greater concern for climate change. I'm joined by George Eustace, the Secretary of State for DEFRA, Tom Bradshaw, Deputy President of the National Farmers Union, and a farmer himself, and Beth Hart, Vice President for Supply Chain and Brand Trust at McDonald's, who are kindly sponsoring this podcast. So, welcome to you all. Tom, you work with multiple farmers and see the problems that they're facing firsthand. To start with, can you tell us what it's like to be a British farmer today?
0: I mean, it's a time of change on British farms at the moment. And I guess there's, while there's clearly opportunities, I think there are some real pressures with the inflationary challenges that are being faced. Farmers are are sort of right at the forefront of that, uh, looking at their businesses and how that's going to work for the future. And then there's also the challenges of labour, which businesses right the way across the rural economy are facing. I think across the wider economy, everybody is struggling with the availability of labour as well. and I think that's probably one of the critical challenges that we need to look for solutions to how we can make ourselves be an industry that people want to join but also what, what the immigration policy might look like to help provide that workforce of the future.
2: George, a lot of what Tom just mentioned is in many ways out of the government's hands. You know, arguably it's more in the Bank of England's hands when it comes to many of the tools that we need to use to curb inflation. But when it comes to immigration, the government does have a key role to play. How do you think the government should be going about trying to solve some of these problems right now?
1: Well, we've always had a seasonal agricultural worker scheme since the Second World War, in fact. And we had one well, right up until 2013 when it was judged no longer to be needed due to freedom of movement. But obviously now we've left the European Union. Clearly we need a seasonal agricultural worker scheme again. That's why we immediately opened pilots for the first couple of years. We've just expanded uh, the scheme. It's now a multi-annual scheme. We've just expanded it. To forty thousand, because we judge that's what's needed in this current year, and uh, you know if necessary we would extend it again. The reality is that certain sectors, particularly horticulture, things like soft fruit and, and the vegetable sector, they actually need to have that uh, access to labour. Some of these businesses will employ thousands of, of temporary workers short term, and it's very important they're able to access that. And so. It's always been recognized, even by the Migration Advisory Committee, that you need special provisions for horticulture, and that's what
3: we've put in place.
2: Mm. Beth, is it enough? How is McDonald's handling the worker shortage?
3: We have been hit by it in our business too, as well as our supply chain. However, we're starting to see things turn around. As a business of sources, 100% British and Irish beef, 100% British pork, 100% British free-range eggs. We are very, very invested in the agricultural industry in the United Kingdom. We've probably felt the more immediate challenges. We source British lettuce when in season in the UK, and that's probably where we've had the most immediate challenges. We happen to have our lettuce suppliers in this morning, and again, we are starting to see a turnaround in that. But ensuring that we have access to skilled, capable, motivated, well-recognised, well-rewarded people across our entire agricultural supply chain is absolutely critical to our business success.
2: And Tom, it's very understandable to talk about labor shortages in the short term, as you know, as you say, the farming industry and industries across the UK are facing this crisis. But what about longer term labor shortages? The average age of a farmer is about 60 years old. There seems to be a lack of enthusiasm for farming amongst the younger generations.
0: Yeah, I I always take that statistic with a degree of caution, because I think it's, it's sort of the the BPS claimant or the support claimant that is the one that, that's got the age of which averages 60. But actually the management decisions are very often taken by other people. So I think that we do have to be very cautious about how we use that figure. Um, but we talked there and we heard a lot about the seasonal challenges with, for the workforce. But we've also got the, the permanent workforce, which is proving very, very difficult to recruit. We've got an economy which has got less than 4% unemployment. Now, that's an incredible success story. But it does mean that for rural businesses, Trying to find the workforce of the future at the moment is very challenging. And so there's two sides to this. How do we fill that gap in the immediate short term? And also, how do we make ourselves, how do we put training plans in, in place to, to make ourselves be an industry that people want to be part of? And I think it should be really exciting. You know, producing food for the population while trying to solve climate change is an incredible challenge. And that's what we're absolutely the forefront of in, in farming. And so I really think there is a, an incredibly exciting future. But it's how we engage the next generation with that, uh, with our industry, with food production, but also with the environmental side of it, which I think is so important as we move forward.
2: George, Tom mentioned rural areas there, and it seems like an area where perhaps farming and what the government calls its levelling up agenda could overlap. But are the right incentives in place to get people thinking about, say, even leaving the urban areas and moving out to the rural areas to take up a career in agriculture?
1: Well, Tom's raised an important point, which I think we need to recognize, which is often that the person on, on the account who, who owns a business is that bit older, but he'll often have sons or daughters or other family in the business. So that, that statistic can be misleading. But certainly one of the things we want to achieve is to make it easier for farmers who want to retire and should probably retire to do so and do so with dignity. So we've opened a voluntary exit scheme where we will pay farmers a multiplier of their annual BPS payment, their annual subsidy payment, in return for them, surrendering their entitlements and either renting out or selling their land. And what we hope that will do is, in some cases, make it easier for farmers to to step back and confront what's often a difficult decision for them, while simultaneously bringing more holdings to rent, which is absolutely critical to helping a new generation onto the land. And I actually think if you go to agricultural shows around this time of year and you go to the food hall, you will see many, many entrepreneurial new businesses in various sort of sectors of food, often with individuals, you know, maybe in their 40s who had a career doing something somewhere else, some other walk of life, but chose to to return to the countryside and set up their own business. I see no reason why we couldn't have more such entrepreneurial people deciding to to come back and turn their hand to farming. But at the moment, they they can't because they can't get access to land. And one of the reasons they can't get access to land is the old legacy EU policy basically subsidized people for owning or occupying land. So it creates a powerful disincentive for people to rent out their land and and give somebody else a chance. And that's why we, we need to both end those subsidies on land ownership while simultaneously create the right tools to help farmers to retire when that's the right thing for them to do. And we'll also shortly be announcing policies to help new entrants get onto the land as well.
2: Tom, what do you make of the policies and incentive schemes that the Secretary of State has just described?
0: I mean, I think to expect the new entrance scheme to transform the industry is going to be very challenging um, because you know, it, is, it is a limited budget and there is going to be a limited amount of land coming forward. But actually, for me, it's about the building blocks, the foundations. We had the National Food Strategy launched about three weeks ago. And within there is the ambition to maintain domestic food supply at the level we have now. And that's a fantastic ambition. It's something that the NFU has been calling really loud for. And, and to deliver that ambition and to grow certain sectors as well, we need to make sure that we've got the foundations. And those foundations for me are things like planning policy, are the immigration policy. It is science and technology and research and development. It's training of our people. Uh, we've got the Institute for Agriculture and Horticulture, which is about developing our workforce to retain the workers that we have but also to make uh, to, to attract new new people into the workforce It's about lifelong learning and, and uh, continued professional development and actually making sure that we've got all those building blocks to deliver the ambition to maintain and grow the sector is something which I think is an incredibly exciting part of the future so I'm not sure it's all going to be about the financial uh, incentives and the, you know, the whether it be the the outgoer scheme or whether it be the new entrance scheme, I actually think fundamentally it's it 's more about the policy and the regulatory framework right the way across government to enable business to operate and, and operate in a in a competitive environment and ultimately be profitable.
2: Beth, why is it so hard in your experience to bring new talent into farming?
3: Well, I guess our role as a big brand that's got a direct link with the everyday consumer that is is looking for great British food and produce and buying the same thing with us day in, day out. We don't just need a sustainable supply chain, we need a resilient supply chain and that means great talent coming in at every single level. You know, boots on the ground at the farm level, but right through the entire food supply chain. So echoing Tom's point about it, it's a full systems approach. We don't just need great agriculturalists, we need great data technologists, we need innovation in our agricultural supply chain. We need to produce more from less and also give our customers something that they truly believe in, a great story about great food that has come from places that they love, know and recognise. We completed some research recently to try and understand why there were so many barriers to young people entering agriculture. We've run a progressive young farmer scheme for the last 10 years and we'd love to open it up to a more diverse group. And it was so interesting to find that, you know, 60, 70 percent of young people just haven't really considered agriculture as a career. They don't think it's something that's open to them. They don't think that's something that's relevant to them. So, again, we think our role could be not so much in policy, more in opening up opportunities, showing people what they could do and can do, maybe in partnership with the NFU. So that just young people see farming, agriculture and the food industry as a fantastic career opportunity.
2: What other lessons do you think can be gleaned from your progressive young farmer scheme?
3: Well the mcdonald's progressive young farmer scheme celebrates 10 years this year and it's probably one of one of our many proudest achievements but bringing young people into the agricultural industry allowing them the opportunity to learn over the course of the year every single aspect of food production and they start on the farm and they finish in a mcdonald's restaurant and i think many of them say they they couldn't quite believe how much goes into food production in the united kingdom and also what an important role they can play in influencing the future. Every single one of our alumni has got a fantastic job. We would like to open up that opportunity, not just to more young people, but to more diverse group of young people so they can learn, they can grow, but also they can influence the future of British agriculture.
2: George, between the COVID-19 crisis and Putin's war in Ukraine, we're talking more and more about food security. And at the moment, I'm thinking specifically about Putin's threat to cut off wheat and grain from the rest of the world. The UK currently grows roughly 64% of the food that we eat, but there are questions about whether or not this should be higher. How do we get this balance right between food security and sustainability, but also competition and focusing on the consumer and making sure that the consumer is getting the best price, whether that be something coming from the UK or from abroad.
1: Yes. So I, I think it's important to distinguish between our food security, which comes from a combination of profitable domestic agriculture and food manufacturing, but also globally, you know, dispersed production around the world and open markets, because You never know when there's going to be a weather event in a particular part of the world that will disrupt supplies. And you therefore need to have open markets so that you can move food around. So it's always been the case that you don't get your food security just by what you produce yourselves. You must have open markets around the world as well. But our national resilience comes from the food that we produce within. And there was a period during the pandemic where we had genuine concerns that the world might start to turn in on itself and that there might actually start to be uh, export bans, for instance, put in place. You know, that focused mind, And I think recent events in Ukraine have underlined that. So it is important that we've got successful, profitable agricultural production and food production in this country. As to what the right level is, I think probably it peaked in the late 1980s, around, I think, 1986 or 7, at the height of you know, some some quite extreme sort of intervention policies that the EU then had and production itself did. I think most people would think that wasn't a very sensible way to go about it because it wasn't oriented to the to the market. But certainly in the interwar years between the, the First and Second World War and indeed in the late, late 19th century, this country had self-sufficiency of a little more than 30 to 40%. So where we are today, which is 75% of the food that we're able to produce, You know, we're probably, you know, historically quite strong position in terms of what that gives us by way of national resilience. And we've said in our food strategy that we want to keep it broadly the same. It's very hard to say precisely what a right level is, because, of course, food tastes change, consumer habits change. Sometimes we've seen, for instance, a big growth in rice consumption in recent years. We can't grow rice. But I think, you know, broadly speaking, making sure it is roughly where it is now, which is at 75 percent for the food we can produce we think is is sensible, and we should have a strategy for food production that recognises the importance of having that profitable industry here in the UK.
2: Tom, what do you make of that balance?
1: For me,
0: putting food on an even keel with the environment is really important. And when I look at some of the decisions that are made at the moment, there is no focus, there's no impact assessment on the impact that that decision would have on food production. So if I look at things like abstraction licences, Water is crucial now for food production, but it's going to become even more important as we move forward. We have surplus water in the winter. We don't have enough in the summer. And so it's not that we're short of water. It's about how we utilise that water. But at the moment, when they're making a decision whether to allow us to abstract the water or not, they're not saying, well, what is the impact on food production? So having the ambition to maintain food production is fantastic. But what we now need to see is how can that decision have a statutory underpinning So that when the Environment Agency are making a decision about what they're going to do with water, they not only have to think about the risk to the environment, they also have to think about the risk to food production. Because the balance between the two is absolutely crucial. And the real danger is that if we don't get that balance right, we end up offshoring our production to other parts of the world where they don't have the same um, sort of regulation in place. So they don't have the same care for water or the environment. They, They use different chemicals than what we use here. And ultimately, we offshore our environmental damage to other parts of the world, which is simply unacceptable. So I think that there is a really fine balance as to how we can bring this all together. And like I think we said earlier on, it's, it's working cross-government as well as within DEFRA, because some of this is within the gift of George and DEFRA, and other parts of it are actually much further working right the way across uh, government departments, which is where I think some of the challenges are going to lie.
2: George, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point, and that's why... You know, while there is some criticism of some of the trade deals that have been done, notably on on Australia, what we have sought to do in those trade agreements is, first of all, ensure that we retained absolute sovereignty on SPS issues, as they're called. Those are the sanitary and phytosanitary issues, the food safety issues, if you like. We should retain control over setting what those standards are. And where we've got sensitive sectors, particularly beef, to a lesser extent sheep, we basically do have staged liberalisation. We do it gradually over 10 years, and then we've got a special agricultural safeguard that kicks in for the following five years. So Tom makes a good point. We're not doing the planet any favours if we raise the regulatory bar at home, drive our own producers out of business, and then just import food from countries that have got a much more damaging environmental impact. And uh, a modern trade agreement should recognise those environmental standards and animal welfare standards too.
2: Beth, McDonald's has made a lot in recent years about its moves to champion sustainability. But have the last few years around food shortages, the cost of living crunch, labour shortages, changed McDonald's future ambitions?
3: Well, I look after the McDonald's, UK and Ireland food supply chain, and you've heard us use the word resiliency a lot in this conversation. Boy, is it a supply chain buzzword at the moment. And balancing the plate between assured supply you know in a business like ours no lettuce no big mac we need to make sure it shows up every single day the daily miracle that is our supply chain but in addition we need to make sure it's great quality affordable accessible and also that we can meet the many public commitments we've made to the environment including a commitment to achieve net zero by 2040 aligned with the nfu goal that's going to be a considerable challenge for us. But equally, it makes such a good business sense as well as being the right thing to do. So we do rely upon the policy landscape setting us up for success, but we recognise also that we as a business are accountable for playing a huge role in that success story too, sourcing the right thing from the right place at the right time to the right specification and maybe just leveraging our influence to ensure that we're giving the customer what they want every single day, but while doing the right thing for the planet.
2: George, we focused a lot on the difficulties and the frustrations around the uncertainties that we're facing. But with uncertainty can also come an opportunity to move into new and innovative farming methods. A lot of people are talking about regenerative farming, which, put simply, is farming that improves the environment, disturbing the soil as little as possible, avoiding heavy fertilizers, diversifying crops, and so on. Is this the moment to actually push for those big changes?
1: Yes, it is. And, you know, I've always said that we want... The transition from the, the old agriculture policy we had inherited from the EU to the new one to be, you know, an evolution, not a revolution. So we're doing it gradually over seven years. We're going to you know, progressively wind down those old subsidies for land ownership while simultaneously opening new schemes. And the sustainable farming incentive that opened recently is very much focused on supporting regenerative agriculture, paying farmers to do soil analysis, to understand the organic matter content of their soils, paying them as well to have green cover crops over the winter to prevent soil erosion. And we'll be having other modules of that launching next year, looking at hedgerows, where we'll be paying farmers to manage hedgerows in a sensitive way, and also what's called integrated pest management, where we have you know, a mix of different agronomic techniques to manage pest and disease pressures, rather than always reaching for, for the sprayer. So these are all you know, quite powerful policies to pay and incentivize a shift towards a sustainable approach to farming. And I think is exactly the way we should be going. And in these new policies, it shouldn't just be the old EU methodology of income foregone, where you effectively just compensate farmers for their loss for doing the right thing by the environment. We should actually not begrudge farmers a margin for doing the right thing for the environment. So inherent in our new schemes will be that they will be proportionally more generous than the old EU agri-environment scheme. So the quid pro quo, if you like, getting rid of an arbitrary subsidy for land ownership is that there should be a more generous payment for the things we are trying to encourage farmers to do.
2: Tom, you're nodding along. Yeah,
1: absolutely. The
0: last comment that uh, the Secretary of State made there about farmers being able to, keep, to generate a profit from delivering public goods, I think is absolutely essential. Now, farmers are genuinely part of the solution to this climate challenge that we face, to the environmental challenges that we're facing. But the only way we're going to really incentivize that is by farmers being able to generate a profit from it. Now, these farming systems should also help be, be, over time become more profitable, but they're inherently more risky as well. I, I am slightly nervous about giving things buzzwords. And you know, we've seen some supply chain partners, nobody in this room, but sort of jump on the bandwagon of regenerative agriculture. And we're going to have everything done regeneratively. For me, it's about sustainable food production that's environmentally friendly, it's climate friendly. And we in the UK can be genuinely world leading in delivering that it's climate friendly food. And that is the ambition of the NFU. That's the ambition of our farmers on the ground. And I think it's fundamental to the success as we move forwards that we're always thinking about what the impact is on nature alongside food production.
2: Tom, we've spoken about some really big issues over this podcast. What are your biggest concerns for the medium future when it comes to the farming sector? And what are you most excited about?
0: The, the immediate short-term crisis that we're in, the inflationary pressures are, are quite incredible. Uh, the risk that that's posing within businesses, there's, there's feed, fertilizer, fuel, and critically finance. And I think finance is really going to start to pinch because the working capital required on many farms has, has doubled over the past 18 months. That's a really significant change. And I think in the short term, it's getting through this, this sort of headwind, as many people are calling it. But I'd say it's a mountain. Uh, get, but getting over this mountain in the short term is absolutely crucial. Uh, and it, we, have again, talked about the importance of maintaining domestic food supply. I absolutely believe we can do that. I think the technologies that are being developed, not just geo-editing, but robotics, uh, alongside you know, a drive in, in, in research and development, which I think with With the input prices we're seeing now, with the rising output prices, hopefully agriculture is going to become sexy again. And actually, that will drive a whole level of R&D that we haven't seen uh, for a long while. And I think that's going to be really a drive change and and make us more efficient, which I think is incredibly important. But the bit that we overlook here is that if, if we don't maintain the productive capacity of UK farming, then eventually we lose our processing capacity as well because we only have our processes there on the ground because of the, they have access to our raw ingredients. And if they don't have access to that, then we end up not just losing the, the ability to produce food, but we also you know, offshore our processing capacity. So for me, it's fundamental to the whole success of our rural economy that we have a thriving food and farming sector, you know, delivering great British food, affordable British food, a profitable business for, for our members to be in, alongside delivering for the environment and I just think that that's an incredibly exciting ambition to be part of and and, it's great that we can talk about it today but I I really do think that once we get through this period of change and things settle down that there will be you know there is a bright future it will look different and and I think the bit that we haven't probably focused on enough is the people that are going to provide that growth within our industry you know that they are we've got to attract that new generation of farmers and I think they, you know, they were, they're they not going to be the same people that have always done it before.
3: Beth, what are you concerned but also excited about? I guess just to build on Tom's point, it's just not about attracting the, the new generation of farmers. It's setting them up for success. And I think within the United Kingdom, we have the resources, the brainpower, the capability to truly set the next generation of young farmers up for success. Give them a meaningful career that can be fulfilling and genuinely play a key role in some of the biggest planetary challenges of our time. Greatest concern is that we don't attract the talent or that the headwinds that Tom referred to hold us back from making brave, bold decisions to step forward. It's really easy in disruptive times like ours off the back of the pandemic and supply chain disruptions around the world, now seeding food and paper price inflation to, to step back from making some big decisions. But when we can see that the demand is still there, that customers still want great British produce, we need a thriving resilient farming sector that is fit for the future and ambitious about the future to ensure we're continuing to build a thriving economy. George, with all the difficulties that both
2: COVID and the war in Ukraine have brought about, how optimistic are you in the medium term that British farming can improve its efficiencies and deliver for the UK what it needs when it comes to food security?
1: Oh, I'm very confident of that. And in fact, we're always in danger of of talking down our own industry. The truth is that we are globally competitive in in many sectors. If you look at the dairy industry, Australian dairy producers cannot compete with the UK. In fact, for that matter, New Zealand dairy producers, we are among the most competitive in the world. Sectors like poultry and pigs and arable, again, globally competitive. We do have some sensitivities around beef and sheep just because of the sheer price of land and availability of land in this country. But You know, but generally we are in a very competitive position. Our policies are trying to support farmers to invest in new technology and new equipment. We're making regulatory changes as well to, for instance, make it possible to use gene editing so that we can get a new generation of crops that sharpen our global competitiveness. So I'm very confident with that new regulatory approach that we're now free to pursue outside the European Union. Coupled with the grants we've got to help farmers invest, we will actually be in a, a very strong competitive position.
2: Beth, George and Tom, thanks for joining me.